It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. Our lead story this morning is about a federal judge who has ordered the American Hospital Association to fix the Medicare appeal backlog. Standing by to report this developing story is healthcare attorney Andrew Walkler. Also on the rundown this morning, healthcare attorney David Glazer reports on the latest development that could turn out to be risky business. And speaking of risky business, CMS has begun mailing out new Medicare beneficiary cards. Author, educator, and consultant Dwayne Abbey is standing by to report on what could be this year's biggest threat to senior citizens. Monitor Monday National Correspondent J. Paul Spencer will report on the latest developments involving Medicare Advantage organizations. And Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley has the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday Listener Survey. But well, we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all, and welcome back, Chuck. Um, last week, I presented a RAC University webinar on the changes to the national coverage determination for automatic implantable cardioverter defibrillators, also known as ICDs. I also talked about the NCD for the Watchman, the MitraClip, and more. If you missed it, you can still watch it on demand. But I wanted to share with you a couple of interesting points. First, a little bit of trivia. Although I admit I have not read all of the almost 400 NCDs that CMS has ever published, the prior NCD for an ICD was the only one that I had ever seen that specifically required the patient themselves to provide informed consent. That meant if the patient couldn't provide informed consent, the procedure would not be covered. Now note this isn't merely the measure of the ability to sign the consent. The patient had to be able to understand the risks, the benefits, and the alternatives to the planned procedure, and then sign the consent. But they took that out. Instead, all patients receiving an ICD for primary prevention must participate in a shared decision-making encounter using an evidence-based tool. But just like providing informed consent, if the patient themselves can't participate in that shared decision-making discussion, then the procedure is not covered. I'll expect to see more requirements for shared decision-making from CMS as time goes by. The other interesting thing I discovered relates to the mitra clip. This is a percutaneous procedure to treat severe symptomatic mitral regurgitation in patients who are not candidates for surgical mitral valve repair or replacement. Now, if a patient has a Medicare Advantage plan from United Healthcare and they meet the strict requirements of the NCD, they can have the mitra clip. But if that same patient has commercial insurance provided by United Healthcare, they cannot because United Healthcare's own coverage analysis has determined that MitraClip is unproven and not medically necessary. According to their policy guide, there is insufficient evidence demonstrating the long-term efficacy of the device. This clearly demonstrates the frustration that most of you face every single day when trying to figure out which set of rules to use to determine if a patient should be inpatient or observation. But in this case, it's practically a life or death situation. Two patients with the exact same problem with the physician recommending the same procedure and the same insurer paying the claims, but because they have different plans, one can have the procedure and one cannot. What a system we have. 
Finally, I need to make two corrections. If you listen to my webinar, I referred to modifier QR for the ICD placement. That should actually be modifier Q0. I'm going to blame CMS for that one. The links on the active NCD on the web um, sends one to a transmittal that talks about the QR and not the Q0. Second, in my report last week on Genesis, I, um, their actual denial rate was 2 out of 52. And I'm going to blame the QIO for that one because of their ambiguous wording. But despite my amazing ability to deflect blame, I did learn a lesson. And from now on, I'm going to triple check my references and then write my articles. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was Rack Monitor Contributor and the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday listener survey is Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckler. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning, Chuck. Last week I reported on the Las Vegas shooting incident in a webinar that Asper Tracy did on a no-warning incident, which was great opportunity for all of the hospitals and care providers in Las Vegas to exercise their CMS emergency preparedness rule effectiveness. Well, I previously reported on the CMS emergency preparedness rule that is effective, was effective, 11-15-2017 for 17 different Medicare provider types, including hospitals, skilled nursing facilities, home health agencies, hospice rehab agencies, course, ambulatory surgery centers, etc. While it's probable that most large facilities such as hospitals and integrated health systems have fully implemented policies and procedures in compliance with the emergency preparedness condition. It's likely that many small providers have not fully implemented the transition from the disaster condition to the emergency preparedness condition. During a uh, year of lead up to this implementation date, CMS did a series of webinars. One of the last ones, they answered a question as to what would happen if a provider did not have in place all of the requirements by the date, even though their survey took place after the date. And CMS jumped around the point a lot, just basically saying the effective date was 11:15. Well, lo and behold, I heard from a provider last week who received a condition level deficiency, even though they had substantially completed most of the requirements because it wasn't completed by the effective date. So a couple of other things that I've heard around the block to monitor Monday listeners, mostly small providers, uh, from surveys that have involved emergency preparedness. They've been cited for not enough staff to fulfill all the roles that are required. Um, they've been cited if the things weren't completed by 11:15. They've been cited if they couldn't show evidence that all PRN staff or float staff received training under every location that they floated to and had a specific training at that location. Um, so, uh, and also one thing that's kind of interesting, despite the wide proliferation of healthcare templates that all of the state nursing home associations and other groups are using, and Asper Tracy has them on their website, one provider reported that they've got a deficiency because they used a template. So quite interesting there, and I would suggest get ready. Emily, can you pull up our poll? And this is in support of um, Dr. Hirsch's continued discussion of our total knee replacement situation. In fact, he's got an upcoming webinar. If you want to click on the conference materials there, you can find out about it. How is your facility handling admission status on Medicare total needs? 
Check one for inpatient only for patients with a documented expectation of two midnights. Check two for inpatient allowed for one midnight patients at higher risk using case-by-case exception or who needs a SNP admission. Three, all as inpatient then post-discharge self-denying any low-risk one-day inpatients. And four, if you don't know what you're doing. And five, of course, if you're not doing total knees at your place. We'll be back a little bit later to comment on that, Jeff. Thanks, Nancy, very much. That was Monitor Monday senior correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the president and CEO for Nancy Beckley and Associates. And as Nancy said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in the broadcast. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Dwayne Abbey, David Glazer, J. Paul Spencer, and healthcare attorney Andrew Walkler. This is Monday, it's April the 9th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Inpatient or outpatient status is the question causing total knee replacement to become the tsunami of health care in 2018. And we will examine that subject during a webcast on total knee replacement this Wednesday, April 11th. Register now for this exclusive Rack Monitor webcast. Mary Beth Pace of Trinity Health System and Dr. Jeffrey Pilger at St. Elizabeth Healthcare in Edgewood, Kentucky will lead this extraordinary webcast. They will share their approach with you and your team for admitting total knee replacement patients. Register now to attend Total Knee Replacement, in or out. The important webcast is this Wednesday, April 11th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. To register, click on the rotating ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or call 800-252-1578, extension 2. Thank you, Clark Anthony. In a program note, next Monday we're going to have an exclusive report, Medicaid at State of the Union. Attorney and Rack Monitor contributor Nicole Emanuel is going to be our special guest for that broadcast. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, what is risky this morning? Good morning and welcome back, Chuck. Since Drew is going to be talking about the judicial process to improve the administrative problems, plaguing the Medicare appeals process, I thought it might be good today to talk about a few tips for your fixing internal issues that can damage the appeals process. There are a few easy steps you can take to increase the odds you will have a successful appeal. I'm a huge fan of creating an organized system to complete an appeal, but sometimes I see clients whose blind adherence to structure inadvertently harms the quality of the appeal. Perhaps the biggest mistake is developing an appeal form that includes too much extraneous information. This problem seems particularly pervasive for clients that use outside consultants to write their letters for them. Many appeals forms open with an extensive medical history of the patient. While there are certainly times it's relevant that an 89-year-old woman lives independently and can ambulate a half mile on her own, it's important to decide which facts are relevant for the appeal in question. Having a page or two of extraneous information in your appeal letter can result in your key message being lost among the clutter. Be terse and focused. Next, make sure you're making it easy for everyone to find the information in your file. Use page numbers. Make them unique and sequential. Have it throughout the appeal that each piece of paper submitted, whether it's at the reconsideration or redetermination level, has its own unique page number. When you're in a phone hearing, you want it to be easy to ensure you're all looking at the same document. And don't forget, while tabs are helpful, often they get lost in the copying process. Another tip, if you're unsure whether to include a particular set of information, give it thought, then err on the side of submission. Now, this may seem totally contrary to my advice of avoiding clutter, 
But since you can't add information once you get past the quick, it's better to resolve doubt by including information in the record. But there's a strategy here too. Place it in an appendix at the end, so it's less likely to distract, but it's available if you need it. I will close by noting that many healthcare professionals still believe it's improper for an organization to release healthcare records that the organization received from an outside entity. That misunderstanding can cost you success in an appeal. You can and should include outside records as part of your submission. Your medical professionals relied on those records when choosing treatment for a patient. Make sure that whoever is reviewing your professional's behavior has the same information available to them that the professional used when exercising clinical judgment. Before I move on to my close here, I'm going to, I want to make a quick comment on Dr. Hirsch's segment. Note that national coverage determinations can only grant coverage unless they explicitly limit it. So when there's something in an NCD that seems like it may cause you to lose coverage for a claim, don't give up the ghost unless it's extraordinarily explicit in the NCD it doesn't eliminate coverage. We can talk about that more in the Q&A if there's time. So, Chuck, during next week's broadcast, I'm going to be doing one of my three talks at the American Association of Orthopedic Executives, so I won't be on the broadcast. But I hope listeners who are at the conference will stop by and say hi. Today's song is going to reemphasize my opening point about being focused and punchy. Heed the advice of Gloria Estefan and the Miami Sound Machine. Don't let the words get in the way. Chuck, back to you. Thanks, David, very much. I was Rack Monitor contributor and healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm Fedrickson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis, where the temperature right now is 27 degrees. Medicare Advantage plans are back in the news, and it's not all good news. Monitor Monday National Correspondent Jay Paul Spencer has that report. Paul, good morning. What's not the good news? Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Well, it has been a busy two weeks in the world of Medicare Advantage. Uh, aside from the big announcement that Walmart and Humana are exploring a merger, and another uh, a announcement that Medicare Advantage plans will actually be getting 3.4% more in federal payments next year, we're buried a few different uh, interesting pieces of information that may affect uh, how we report on the uh, progress and quality of Medicare Advantage plans going forward, as well as uh, opening up a strange new world of benefits to Medicare Advantage beneficiaries. So uh, the first thing that was uh, announced is that the Beneficiary Access and Performance Problems Measure is going to be removed in 2019 from CMS's uh, star rating calculations. Uh, basically what this does is it allows patients to tell uh, CMS exactly how their Medicare Advantage plan is doing. And I find it uh, very interesting that a low score can affect the uh, number of payments while a higher score uh, can uh, quite uh, obviously be uh, rather salutary for a uh, Medicare Advantage plan. Uh, so uh, what CMS stated in their announcement was that they wanted to get rid of it in 2018, but of course uh, getting rid of something in the CMS world usually takes somewhere between two years and forever. 
number. So in 2019, CMS is going to, quote, introduce a new measure for the display page uh, instead of what they call BAP or the Beneficiary Access and Performance Problems uh, measure. Uh, Now, another interesting piece of information, and this one uh, truly caught my eye, is that uh, CMS is considering, under the aegis of Medicare Advantage policies, uh, beginning coverage with uh, certain for certain things that we have not thought of as being covered uh, 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 expenses under Medicare, uh, such things as air conditioners for people with asthma, uh, healthy groceries, rides to medical appointments, and home delivered meals, such as a Meals on Wheels program. They're now considering expanding to this coverage. Now, one very uh, interesting. Uh, point about some of this coverage, and I particularly thought of our DME uh, uh, suppliers when I read this particular blurb, is that a physician's order or prescription for some of these things is not going to be necessary, but new benefits must be what they call medically appropriate and recommended by a licensed healthcare provider. Uh, It certainly opens up a brand new world in the coverage of uh, certain expenses for Medicare recipients, uh, understanding that now uh, as uh, we look at the entirety of the Medicare Advantage population, we're looking at roughly one-third of the entire Medicare population now being covered by Medicare Advantage plans. So uh, it would be very interesting if some of these different types of coverage begin to fold in uh, in the future for Medicare Advantage beneficiaries, but not for the two-thirds of Medicare beneficiaries covered by traditional Part B and Part A benefits. And that is where we stand right now with Medicare Advantage programs. And with that, I'll throw it back to Chuck. Thanks, Paul, very much. That was Modern Monday National Correspondent J. Paul Spencer. Paul is a senior healthcare consultant with Doctors Management. New Medicare beneficiary identification cards are scheduled to be mailed from CMS this month. And with the new cards come new scams. Author, educator, and consultant Dwayne Abbey joins us now to report on the new cards and the expected scams on senior citizens. Good morning, Dwayne. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, we have new cards coming out. We're going to replace uh, basically the uh, Social Security number-based HICN numbers with uh, new Medicare numbers. My biggest concern is with the Medicare beneficiaries. I don't know what a typical Medicare beneficiary looks like, but uh, their level of uh, mental acuity can vary highly. So I'm not not sure, number one, that they even know that they're coming. Uh, They don't know when they're going to come. Uh, They don't know what to do with them once they have come. I think we're going to see some scams. Uh, They're already starting. For instance, a Medicare beneficiary may receive a phone call indicating that uh, new cards are being issued, but it may be a while before the uh, particular Medicare beneficiary receives theirs. So for a small fee, uh, they will provide a temporary card. The fee can be any place from five to fifty dollars and of course you have to give out the financial information so yeah we have new cards coming but i think with them will come some challenges and as far as any fraudulent act 
activities, I think uh, we're going to see a lot more rather than less. We'll see how this whole process works. So my first big concern is with the Medicare beneficiaries. Do they know about this? Do they know what to do? Uh, should they be expecting their cards? If so, when? And I think for the average uh, beneficiary, they're not even aware of the fact that they're going to get this new card. Okay. Now, once the Medicare beneficiary gets their new card, they are to destroy their old card. But we have to be very careful here because we've got a bunch of cards that could be running around. Uh, we could have Medicare Advantage cards. We could have uh, Medicaid cards. So we're going to have to be very careful about destroying things. And then we're going to have to be careful about the way in which we uh, go about destroying them because uh, you can't just throw these things in the garbage. They must be truly destroyed. Okay, now that's from the Medicare beneficiary side. What about the provider? Well, providers need to get ready. Uh, you need to be prepared. Your front desk people need to be prepared to address questions because Medicare beneficiaries may be coming in with questions about their new cards or they may have received their new card in which case you will want to process it, uh, copy it, uh, update your computer system, uh, etc. So you'll have to go through this process of uh, updating everything and you'll have to well, you're going to have to allow for some time to get this done. Plus, your computer systems need to be updated. I'm going to presume that that has already been done. If that has not been done, then you better get on it right away because uh, these new numbers are going to be coming very shortly. We're supposed to uh, complete this entire process by the uh, end of next year. We'll see what happens, but again, uh, two big concerns, one for the Medicare beneficiary, one per, for providers, and uh, in summary, this is a relatively straightforward process, or at least it should be, but I think there are going to be some problems that we will probably encounter as we go through the process, so stand by everybody, be prepared be watchful. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Dwayne, very much. That was author, educator, and consultant, Dwayne Abbey. Dwayne is a Rack Monitor contributor, and he's the president of Abbey and Abbey Consultants. Our lead story this morning is about a federal judge in Washington who has ordered the American Hospital Association to fix the Medicare backlog process. With more on this developing story is healthcare attorney Andrew Walkler. Good morning, Drew. Hey, Drew, is there a light at the end of the appeals tunnel? There may be. I'm not sure quite how bright it is, but it, uh, I think, continues uh, to improve. This is a case that was filed in 2014, and it's gone back and forth between the district court and the court of appeals. The previous ruling was that uh, we had to be current, that is, have our hearings within 90 days um, within a four-year period of time. 
CMS claim that was impossible would lead to payment of inappropriate claims. It was remanded back to uh, Judge Borsberg at the U.S. District Court to determine if it was impossible. And the judge ordered the American Hospital Association to propose specific recommendations for reducing the Medicare appeals backlog that it wishes the court to oppose via its mandamus authority and explain why the current procedures are insufficient. Uh, that, those recommendations must be submitted by June 22, 2018. Uh, the government must respond to their recommendations, provide a status update on the uh, progress of current reforms by July 6. This order really signals that this judge is considering options for clearing the backlog. Let's look at the context um, of which this is taking uh, place. Um, and, and this is good. We have a relatively short time frame, and I believe this is, has been a catalyst for the reforms that we have uh, and will continue to be. Interestingly, on the same day, we got notice that the low-volume appeals project has been uh, extended to June 8, 2018, and that's important for our listeners to know who want to submit that and may have uh, missed a window. Uh, currently, the wait is 1,216 days. Um, there are 502,000 appeals pending, and only 93,500 appeals can be processed. Uh, that is the capacity of Omaha. Um, but let's look at a couple of, I, I think, uh, developments. One, in the current budget that was passed, I believe there are uh, meaningful uh, increases uh, for Omaha's budget, which will increase um, ALJs and attorney adjudicators. So that should um, uh, help to some extent. We have the low-volume appeals uh, process. We have the expanded uh, SCF, the settlement, and we have the statistical sampling initiative. Uh, other suggestions, some that um, I have read were attributed to the AHA, would be imposing financial penalties on the RACs if they're certain if the majority of their denials are uh, overturned, and eliminating RACs to make medical necessity judgments. Those going to the QI, oh, that would be significant. Um, there is a provision for stipulated decisions. Um, these are just some other concepts that I'll uh, throw around. Um, having those decision settlements take place at the QIC level could help uh, reduce uh, significantly. I think extending the QIC formal discussion that uh, DM was available to DME to other providers uh, could also help uh, reduce the backlog. With that, Chuck, I'm out of time, but I think we'll see some proposals being submitted shortly. Thanks very much, Drew. That was Andrew Walker. Uh, Drew Walker is the managing partner of Walker & Associates. He's also a Rack Monitor contributor. Thanks very much, Drew. You can read his story, by the way, on our homepage at rackmonitor.com. 
Now is the time for the results of our Modern Money Listener Survey. Once again, here's Nancy Beckley. All righty, Chuck. And actually, while our poll results are coming up, I'm thinking that Medicare Advantage stuff is quite interesting. Back when I worked physical therapy, workers' comp for injured workers, everybody wanted to have a hot tub in their backyard. I guess now if you're on Medicare Advantage, maybe you can apply to get one. So as for the results of our poll... 19% of our listeners this morning are doing inpatient only with patients with a documentation expectation of two midnights. We have 19% of our listeners, just equal, inpatient allowed for one midnight patients at higher risk of using case-by-case exception or they need to go to a SNF. 3% are starting as an inpatient. And then 33% don't know what their hospital is doing. So I'm going to also make a correction. The webinar coming up this Wednesday is by our good pals, uh, Mary Beth Pace and Dr. Filgers, not Dr. Hirsch. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nancy, very much. And uh, David, let's take a look. I think we've got time for one question. Let's see if we can squeak in two. So Vicki wants to know, Paul, are Medicare Advantage programs held to a 24-hour time frame for peer reviews by NCQA? Maybe we can do that as a yes or no. It, it is a very quick answer, and the answer is yes, as long as they are an NCQA accredited Medicare Advantage plan. All right, and we'll sneak in one more. Uh, Drew, is the American Hospital Association asking for input? Do they want people to comment to the AHA? Do you know? Um, I don't know, but I would uh, encourage it, and I actually meant to in my presentation. I think if you have uh, ideas, uh, I try to share my ideas with uh, uh, Omaha uh, when I have them, how we can uh, make the process more efficiently. So I would encourage everybody to uh, share their ideas with the AHA. Excellent. Thanks, Drew. And Chuck, I'll turn it back to you. Thanks, David, very much. Andrew, thanks for that. Uh, that's going to be a wrap for this edition of Modern Money, and I want to thank you very much for being with us today. And special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Dwayne Abbey, Nancy Beckley, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hurts, J. Paul Spencer, and Andrew Walkler. We thank you for being with us this morning. We look forward to you returning next Monday for another edition of Modern Money. That's where we're going to report on the Medicaid State of the Union. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday Direct Monitor. Thanks very much for being with us. And I want to thank my pal Dennis Jones for sitting in for me last Monday. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.